Hey y'all, and welcome back to Southern Fried Spooky, the podcast home of all things Southern, spooky, and somewhat missing. Hmm? Not like your socks, I mean, disappeared. Oh. This is your Carolina girl, Heather. And this is your Florida man, Tony. And we invite you to join our Facebook page. Feel free to comment. We also are on Instagram, and we have a Patreon. Please leave us a few stars on your podcast platform of choice. Indeed. Now, back in July, um, episode 56, for anyone who's counting, we covered three disappearances. Mm -hmm. We thought we'd do that again with some new and different disappearances. I was about to say, I hope we're not doing the same ones. Yes, it's just going to be a repeat. Groundhog Day. If you missed that one, we should clarify. These aren't the sort that are obviously crimes and we just haven't found the body or someone ran away. These are the sort that we can't figure out. It's like the equivalent of the guy running down the road training for the marathon and just falling in front of the truck and disappearing. Yeah. You know, the cool ones. Yeah. Well, no disappearances. Cool. Well, interesting, I guess. I don't know how to put it. A lot of my favorite mysterious disappearances have been solved and while I find it fascinating, it sort of breaks my heart a little bit. Well, there are a couple that I've been watching that are like, um, they disappeared, and no one knew where they went for 18 years, and suddenly they were discovered, and they had just ran away and wanted a new life. Yeah, well, I was thinking more like Anastasia was buried a little distance away from her family, or Amelia Earhart, well, she's been found, and... Sad! ...involved carnivorous crabs, or the Mary Celeste was carrying chemicals that caused everyone to have kind of fuzzy logic and abandoned ship. Yeah. And I'm both thrilled to know and a little sad to know. So here are the disappearances of this week. Yep. The Gloria Colita. Now this one I heard of. I had not. Now it's a ship. It's very similar to the Mary Celeste in a lot of ways. And its route includes Mobile, Alabama. Mm -hmm. So I figured it deserves to be on our list of southern things. Yeah. Reg Mitchell was a shipwright and captain of outstanding abilities in the late 1930s in Bequia, a part of St. Vincent. Captain Mitchell was himself the son of a shipwright. He built and operated several trading schooners in his time, and in 1939 he designed and built the largest wooden sailing vessel ever constructed in the Caribbean. Wow. The Gloria Colita. At least I assume that's how you pronounce it. I didn't know that it was the largest. I knew it was big, but... She sported three masts, was 165 feet in length, and weighed 175 tons. Wow. And by the way, Captain Mitchell himself was nearly seven feet tall. Or so they say. Compensating! (laughs) You can't tell how tall you are. That is like how big, no, no, how big your ship is is the equivalent of those guys who, how big their truck is. They've jacked (laughs) it up and and like they have those really ugly ass like profile tires. (laughs) That which my good friend Lenore refers to as the Ford Compensator. Indeed. The Gloria Colita began service in the spring of 1939. Now, her typical voyage would start with a trip to what was then British Guiana, and I think it's just Guiana now. It's just Guiana now, yeah. Um, They would take on a load of rice, sail to Cuba, and in Cuba they would sell the rice and then load sugarcane. Then they'd sail for Alabama where they sold the sugar and took on a load of lumber and returned to Cuba. So they just kind of went on this... So trade route, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a a trade route. Just a constant routine. And this kept Captain Mitchell busy for two years until his last mysterious voyage in May of 1941. Oh. 
So they'd roded the lice. Yes. <laughs> they loaded the rice in British Guiana, bound for Havana. There, he loaded his sugar and went to Venezuela. And for some still unknown reason, Mitchell fired or let go his entire crew and hired a new Spanish-speaking one. He set sail for Mobile to pick up another load of lumber to sell in Cuba. He left Mobile on January 21st, 1940, and that was the last time anyone ever saw him or his crew. Wow. Perhaps. After departing from Mobile, they were never heard from again. A U.S. Coast Guard plane sighted the Gloria Colita awash two weeks later, drifting in the Gulf Stream with no sign of life aboard. The ship's rigging and rudder were gone, and it was completely empty, save for, according to legend, the ship's dog. She was eventually towed back to Mobile and sold to an American for scrap, which kind of sounds sad. Yeah. No trace or word was ever heard of Captain Reg Mitchell or his crew. And the tale of the Gloria Colita or Colita drifted into Caribbean folklore, where the legend has continued to grow. Now, stories and theories abound, of course. Yeah. Some say the Spanish crew mutinied and killed Captain Mitchell, only to be lost themselves on the ship's towboat. And it's rumored that there was food on the table in the cabin, and that the ship's dog was alive on board when the towboat was reached. Well, at least they found the dog. Yeah, the dog survived. That's a good thing. Now, the most interesting tale is that a German U-boat took Captain Mitchell prisoner and forced him to act as a pilot. It's claimed in many corners that throughout World War II in the Caribbean, or do you say Caribbean? I say Caribbean, but... Okay, fair enough. There were reports of a very tall, dark man, not in uniform, seen on the bridge of a German sub as their vessel was being sunk by the deck gun. So what really happened aboard the Gloria Colita? Nothing good, apparently. No, I I will say like Pirates of the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. but when we're talking about the place... I've always said Caribbean. (laughs) Well, the place, I'll say Caribbean. I don't know. It's sort of like that whole, is it pecan or pecan? Or worse, pecan. Never say that. That just sounds gross. um, I say pecan. It sounds fancy. It's like the people who say all. But it, I, to me, it's it's very it's like contextual. Yeah. <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, we're going to the Caribbean. I mean the exact same thing. It's just <laughs> it's contextual. It depends on the accent you're choosing yeah. to use. Apparently. Are you ready for disappearance number two? Sure. And you have fun pronouncing this last name. You always give me the hard names, but it's really not that bad. Peter Dromgul. D-R-O-M-G-O-O-L-E. Dromgul. Okay. Unless it's Dromguli, but there was no... Kind of like Svenguli. There was no mention of any pronunciation there. Uh, all right. So he disappeared from the UNC Chapel Hill campus oh. in 1833. So we're a little close to home now, We huh? are indeed. My best friend went to UNCC. The legend of Peter Dromgul and Who went to UNCC? Fanny... Betsy. Oh. The legend of Peter Dromgul and Fanny... <laughs> Is a popular, Another fanny. Yes, indeed. <laughs> a popular fanny. campus story, which, okay, to our British-minded friends, it doesn't mean to us what it means to you. It's the back part, not the front. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about the butt, not the other bits. Yeah. And for some reason, it's always been a popular name throughout right. history in the or, U.S. And to sit on one's fanny. Yes, yes, indeed. Having clarified that, I'm sure that makes a huge difference. <laughs> they were a popular campus story at the UNCC at Chapel Hill. Drumgul was a student at the university who supposedly died in a duel in 1832. 
It's said that his body was buried under a stone, conveniently known as Dromgul Rock. I'm sure that happened after. Right. Located at a spot near campus known as Piney Point, near the ominous Gimgul Castle. I did not know he had a castle. Dark stains on the rock are reputed to be his blood, which would not wash away with the passage of time. Peter Dromgul's disappearance was immediately noticed. His rival and murderer spread the rumor that Dromgul had run away to join the army. But, as can happen when you shoot someone in front of a large number of witnesses, the man's part in Peter's death was soon known. He abandoned studies and disappeared from Chapel Hill, never to be heard from again. Dual disappearance! Woo! Wow. Now, university students who told many versions of the dual legend formed in 1889 a secret chivalric society called the Order of the Gimgul. Yeah, I don't know. Whose members in 1926 completed construction of a gothic edifice called Hippole Castle at Piney Prospect. The legend became a uniquely North Carolina literary motif. Piney Prospect was, for decades, one of Chapel Hill's foremost dating destinations. Oh. It was Lover's Lane. So, okay, I was about to say, so like, you know, make out point, Lover's yeah. Lane, that type of deal. Yeah, the place where the serial killer always goes. Yeah. Now, this is all the legend. No, officer, I swear, I've always had this hook for a hand. I swear. <laughs> Drumgul's actual story is probably not nearly as interesting. Alas. So he was allowed to stay around as an irregular student working with the tutor toward trying the entrance exam, having failed it once. During the spring of 1833, however, he apparently fell victim to the freshman curses of card-playing and wild companions. Oh, I was going to say the 15, the freshman 15. <laughs> it's good to know that even over a century ago, freshmen still got wild. <laughs> Where he died of eating Cheetos and drinking Mountain Dew. <laughs> um, I guess the comparable activities of the time. <laughs> a Chapel Hill professor, William Hooper, wrote a letter to Drumgul's father reporting his naughty behavior, which apparently led to a breach. So yes, once again, Dad finds out you're partying and takes you out of school. Oh yeah, <laughs> the Van Wilder of his time. So in April 1833, Peter Drumgul left town, quote, without a trace. There was, incidentally, no duel. Legend apparently confused poor Peter with his, I guess, much more interesting uncle, George Drumgool, the Virginia congressman. George C. Drumgool killed a man named Daniel Duggar in a duel on the banks of the Roanoke River in Northampton County, North Carolina, in 1837. Memory of the deed was merged with that of Peter's disappearance. Okay, so just an 1830s version of the telephone game. I mean, how often is that not the case, really? Yeah, that's true. So what happened to Peter? A researcher discovered that the young man made his way to Fort Johnston in, in what is now Southport and enlisted in Louisiana? the Army. I'm not sure. It's one of those names that each state could have one. Yeah. He did enlist in the Army under the assumed name John Williams. Now, how you track that, I'm not sure. And became well-known as a composer for the film industry. Okay, not really. I was about to say, because that's where I thought it was going. <laughs> Drumgul, now Williams, apparently thrived under military discipline. It's amazing to me how many party kids turn out to be decent military people. You would yep. think they would not. He was promoted to first sergeant before his 21st birthday. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, okay, so tell me what that means. Is that impressive? That's very impressive. Okay. 1835, during the Second Seminole War, 
His company was transferred to St. Augustine. You've been there. Mm-hmm. Multiple times we have covered it. Indeed. There, whilst on guard duty, Sergeant Williams was fatally shot one night by a drunken soldier. I don't know if it was his side or the other one. What do we do with a drunken soldier? What do we do with a drunken soldier? <laughs> Sorry. Apparently we court-martialed him, I guess. Right, yeah. He was buried as John Williams in what is now the St. Augustine National Cemetery. Wow. So do you prefer his Jurassic Park score or the one for Star Wars? Ooh, ooh, ooh. I don't know. Like, I do, get, don't get me wrong. I do absolutely adore the Star Wars theme. I mean, just that opening. Who doesn't, right? But the Jurassic Park theme always gives me the chills. Yeah, yep. I've seen you tear up a little bit, especially when the T Rex. When the T Rex shows up, I tear up. Just like I mean, the first time I saw it in theaters, like I had never seen what looked like a real dinosaur on screen. Well, same. That was the point. And then when it, when you know, he's like, "Welcome to Jurassic Park," and it shows the brachiosaur. When it there shows the brachiosaur, I almost cried. I did tear up quite a bit. We are definitely getting off topic. Yeah, sorry, but that's okay. This is several topics together. Yes. Would you like the last one? Sure. Another disappearance. This one's been very weird. And this is not a prolific composer either. No. Okay, to be fair, neither was the other one, but, you know, it was kind of a common name, I suppose. Bobby Dunbar. Yep. Was a boy whose disappearance at the age of four, an apparent return, was widely reported in newspapers across the U.S. in 1912 and 13. So after eight months of national searching, investigators found the child in Mississippi in the hands of William Cantwell Walters of Barnesville, North Carolina. This is sort of the abbreviated version. Yeah. Dunbar's parents confirmed the boy was their missing son. However, Walters insisted that the boy with him was Bruce Anderson, son of a woman named Julia Anderson, by his brother, so it was his nephew. Ms. Anderson was an unwed field hand and was thus unable to afford a lawyer. And the court ruled in favor of the Dunbars. So Percy and Lessie Dunbar retained custody of the child who proceeded to live out the remainder of his life as Bobby Dunbar. But there's, especially back then, there would be no way of like, oh, we have DNA proof that it's, all it is is one person's word against the other. That is ultimately what it came down to. So, so anybody could literally walk up and go, that's my daughter. And back then, they would have been like, oh, okay, well, now you go with this person. And I think it also had to do with who had more means to defend or promote their situation. And, yeah. So here it is in a little more detail. Okay. Lessie and Percy Dunbar of Opelousas. I think. Louisiana. If you're from Louisiana, please tell us. That sounds very Greek to me. Yeah, Opelousas. They had a son on May 23rd, 1908. 1908. (laughs) Named Robert Clarence Dunbar. What a name. Yeah. In August of 1912, the Dunbars went on a fishing trip to nearby Swayze Lake in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. And that is spelled like Patrick Swayze? Yes. Yes, it is. And on the 23rd, While out on that trip, four-year-old Bobby disappeared. Now, it does not say how he disappeared. Like, did they just lose sight of him? Did he fall off the boat? Do you think they would notice? It, It doesn't say. Just that he disappeared. The local police and eventually the state police began a statewide manhunt for the boy. They caught and dissected alligators 
and threw dynamite into the lake, hoping it would eject the body from the water. Wow. None of this worked. Probably because there was no body. Well, yeah. But way to go on destroying the ecosystem. Yeah. So after eight months of this, authorities located Mr. William Cantwell Walters. Now, he worked as an itinerant handyman. Yeah. And he had been traveling through Mississippi with this boy who appeared to match the description and age, etc., of Bobby Dunbar. Walters claimed that the boy was actually Charles Bruce Anderson, the son of a woman who worked for his family and was possibly related to him. He said the boy's mother, Julia Anderson, had willingly granted him custody for the trip. This happened fairly regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like entrusting your kids to go on a family vacation with a friend's family. It's just yeah. one of those things. And I guess because it is his nephew, it, it wouldn't have been too weird. No. And this was corroborated by Julia Anderson herself. Nonetheless, Walters was arrested and authorities sent for the Dunbars to come to Mississippi and identify the boy. Now, accounts vary regarding the reunion of child and mother. Some sources say recognition was immediate. Others say it was much more uncertain. Either he kissed his younger brother or showed no signs of recognition. Either way, the boy returned to Appaloosas with the Dunbars to a parade with much fanfare celebrating the homecoming. Yay, we found him. And still no proof on whether he is actually that child or not. Shortly thereafter, Julia Anderson. Now, there was a mention where, like, when the mother bathed him, she was like, yep, I recognize him, his, you know, like, scars and anything else on it. You know your own kid's body, which sounds creepy, but if you've been a parent, you know what I mean. If you're a parent, you understand that. So shortly thereafter, Julia Anderson of North Carolina arrived to support Walter's contention that the boy was her son. Anderson was a field hand for Walter's family, and she said that she had allowed Walter's to take her son for what was supposed to be a short trip. She further asserted that she had not consented for Walters to take her son for more than a few days. Nevertheless, getting pawned off to another damn family. Well, I don't think that was expected on anyone's part. Now, according to the newspaper accounts, Anderson was presented with a lineup of five different boys who were the same age and description as her son, including the one who had been claimed by the Dunbars to be Bobby. And when the boy in question was presented, he reportedly gave no indication that he recognized her. She asked whether he was the one that was specifically recovered, but no one would answer. And she declared, this part baffles me, that she was unsure. Wait, she didn't know her own son? She apparently could not pick him out of a lineup. I'm pretty sure, even if I hadn't seen my kid in a year or two, I would recognize what they look like. And I've seen some weird lineups, but wow... I mean, if they if he disappeared as a baby and you were getting to see him as a four year old, it might be a little harder. But but this is only a like a short time, like a few days. Yeah, he they didn't sing. I want it that way. Upon seeing the boy the next day, this time she indicated a stronger certainty that he was absolutely her son Bruce. However, word had already spread about her failure to positively identify him on the first attempt. And so her claims were dismissed. Okay, also, this whole situation is just sus. Well, okay, and consider this also. Okay, we're talking early 1900s. She was unwed, had three children out of wedlock, and was considered of immoral character. Well, back then, showing your ankles could mean you were of um, unmoral character. Well, maybe not that, but yeah, I get that. At, with insufficient funds to sustain a long court battle she really had no choice but to go back home. 
She returned to Louisiana for Walter's kidnapping trial to attest to his innocence and pushed for the court to determine that the boy was her son. And at the trial, she became acquainted with the residents of the town of Poplarville, Mississippi, and many of whom had also come to proclaim Walter's innocence. William Walters and Bruce had spent time in Poplarville during their travels, and the community there had come to know them fairly well, with a number of them asserting that they'd seen Walters and the boy prior to the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar. And despite all of this, all the testimonies, the court reached the determination that the boy was Bobby Dunbar. Walters was convicted of kidnapping while the boy remained in custody of the Dunbar family. Good Lord. And lived out the rest of his life as Bobby Dunbar. Again, that whole situation is just a little suspect. (sighs) More than a little. Julia Anderson moved to Poplarville and apparently turned her life around. She married, had several more children founded a church, and became a midwife. Not bad for someone who had been a field hand, I guess. Right. Now, her children always maintained that she was happy, her life was good, and they always regarded Bruce as a kidnapped victim, stolen by the Dunbars and aided by the courts. She passed away in 1940. Walters ended up serving two years for kidnapping, but was released upon an appeal, and he resumed being an itinerant tinker, and he died in 1945. The child, known as Bobby Dunbar, grew up, married, had four children, and died in 1966. Now, one of his granddaughters decided to investigate on her own, being that, you know, this is big family lore. Yeah, and also now we're in the 60s, technology has increased a little bit. Margaret Dunbar Cutright. What a last name! (laughs) She interviewed the Anderson children and poured through notes, newspaper accounts, and court evidence. In 2004, DNA profiling established in retrospect that the boy found with Walters and returned to the Dunbars had not been a blood relative of the Dunbar family. Wow! And this makes most believe that the boy was, in fact, Bruce Anderson, and he had been wrongly identified by Dunbar's parents. However, that doesn't solve what happened to the true Bobby Dunbar, yeah, who is like, where, presumed dead in absentia. Now, in 2008, and I do remember listening to this one, Public Radio International's This American Life with Ira Glass featured The Ghost of Bobby Dunbar, a radio documentary about the investigation of the case by Margaret Cutright. She expressed her own opinion that the real Bobby Dunbar most likely fell into the Swayze Lake during the fishing trip and was eaten by an alligator. That seems a little neat, I guess. She revealed that the results razor. <laughs> She revealed that the results of her investigation had brought joy to Julia Anderson's family, vindication of their claims, as well as to William Walter's family as an exoneration of the kidnapping accusation against him. She also said that posthumously, her, of course. Yes. Well, his family, if not him. She also said that her findings had sown discord within her own family as the majority of her grandfather's children and grandchildren considered themselves to be members of the Dunbar family. They cherished their existing familial relationships and were resentful of Cutright, both for having delved into the matter and for having helped renew the topic in terms of public attention. Well, it doesn't mean they're any different. No. I mean, you grow up with who you grew up with. Yeah. And some journalists theorized that Lessie and Percy Dunbar had maybe done something to their son and used Bruce Anderson to cover their deeds. The truth may never be known. Maybe they just lost him and felt incredibly stupid. Yeah. Like, nope, we can't let anyone know. I don't know. The part I don't understand is how the Dunbar family couldn't really tell if this was their son or not, or that 
Julia Anderson at first couldn't confirm that he was. It is, again, this whole situation is a wee bit sus. Yeah, I mean, it's all very strange. But inasmuch as we have three short stories, yep. because they couldn't, we couldn't make a whole episode about any one no. of these. Though, I guess we could have with Bobby Dunbar, because This American Life did do it. And I highly recommend you look it up, because they go into some serious detail. Yep. Um, I and, love This American Life. And and if you're interested in missing persons cases and stuff like that, you can also look up uh, Missing 411 on YouTube. Yes. And I believe there's a podcast about it, too. There is. Yep. And we discovered that because Mr. Ballin covers so many Yeah, because of, of Mr. Ballin. So, yeah. We like to talk about other people's stuff. That is where we get our inspiration. That is true. Well, that's another approximately half hour of your life disappeared. Yep. We hope that you enjoyed losing it to us. We'd love to find you on our Facebook page. <laughs> Just look for Southern Fried Spooky. Are you giggling at me? I am. Leave us some comments or likes. Be sure to leave us a five-star review if you are so inclined. Indeed. I'm sure we'll have another set of disappearances to share in another few months. Well, I mean, thousands of people disappear every day, so... This is true, but not all of them are weird or strange or Most of them are actually found. Yes, which is a good thing. I mean, it's, it's a good thing. You would think it's like our thousands of people disappear every day. Most of them are actually found. The majority of them are okay. So let us know if your state or country or wherever you are has some particularly good ones. Yep. And by good ones, you know what I mean. Yeah. Interesting ones. Yeah. Creepy ones. Join us next week for whatever weirdness we get up to then. In the meantime, I remain your Carolina girl, Heather. And I'm your Florida man, Tony. And we are Southern, Southern Fried, Fried Spooky. Spooky. Until next week. Bye, y'all. Now, <laughs> somebody ever tries to kidnap me, they'll probably end up just bringing me back. Yeah. About the time that I wake up without any coffee, that will be the worst day they've ever had. I can attest to this. Yeah, yeah. It'd be stupid to kidnap me. It would. It'd be stupid to kidnap you. I'd hate I'd hate to be the on the other end of this. <laughs> That's weird.